0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar. In the late 1960s, Kevin Phillips wrote The Emerging Republican Majority, a book later described as the political bible of the Nixon administration. In it, Phillips predicted a new era of GOP control of the presidency based on the realignment of the South. Throughout the 1970s and 1980s, he was viewed as one of the GOP's top theoreticians and electoral analysts. Today, however... Phillips is warning that the party, and the country as a whole, is headed for potential disaster. His concerns are summed up in the title of his new book, American Theocracy, The Perils and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. Mr. Phillips, recently uh, President Bush was asked if the war in Iraq was a sign of the apocalypse. In fact, the reporter was referring to your book, Do you think that Bush skirted around that question, and if so, why?
1: It became clear that he was essentially stalling and didn't want to answer, and there's good reason for that, because if he answered that he was concerned about the apocalypse and the end times and so forth, a fair amount of his constituency would have been very, very unhappy. And When he didn't discuss that at all, some of his constituency in the evangelical community turned out to be unhappy, but... He was probably better off not saying anything than starting to answer the question.
2: Do you believe him to be a, a man of the faith that he professes to these uh, to these evangelicals, or is he a political opportunist? I don't think it's a combination.
1: George W. Is, is an opportunist here. He may be an opportunist in the sense of seeing that there's a huge constituency there to be tapped and, and led, <laughs> But I don't think he's insincere in his his opinion that, as he's put it, that God wanted him to run for president. I think he he has that viewpoint. He's said many things in that same direction. He's yeah. talked about uh, how speaking for God makes it possible for him to do his job. I don't want to put all yeah. these words in his mouth too lightly. Some of it's hearsay, but he certainly has talked about how God wanted him to run for president. Right. And I think, unfortunately, it probably is going to have to go into a category called the politics of delusion. It's pretty unlikely that uh, we can prove that he was ever requested to run from on high, or that God does speak through him, and it may be that it's not that he's trying to con us, but that... It's kind of a mistaken self perception.
2: Yeah, I, I've heard you discuss this uh, on other uh, programs where you, you talk about the idea, uh, and throughout history, we have the history is a, there's plenty of examples of, of leaders who have claimed to be uh, an instrument of God or have to have heard the word of God. And often, if not, I'm um, certainly most of the time they're met with a lot of derision. How does this project to the uh, our image to the rest of the world? It, do people around the world see him as a delusional?
1: I think people around the world don't care for George W. Bush too much. I'm yeah. not certain that's because they think that he's presupposing that he's playing a... Uh, a role, of no. a religious sort that they don't believe he really plays. I think they don't care for his politics mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. It's also been true that in most of the countries of Europe, uh, they have had leaders in the past, not yeah. very recently usually, yeah. who believe that they spoke for God and they flew God's banner. And funny thing, in the end, it usually didn't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Countries that have presupposed this have usually found out the hard way that there was no uh, celestial bulletproof shield, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm trying to f- – because we are – we have these, this huge clash of, of civilization taking place in the Middle East, or at least the perception is that that's what's going on. Uh, bin Laden often talks about the United States as being uh, the crusaders. So – and if the United States is being perceived as – around the world, particularly in the Middle East, as the uh, – carrying the the, the 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 Christian theology into the Middle East, this certainly – is throwing gasoline on in an already pretty good, pretty good sized fire, isn't it? How much weight does Bin Laden have in the Middle East, and how much of this is being played out in the Middle East on this sort of theological plane? Well,
1: I think that Bin Laden is is appealing to the Islamic radicals, yeah. and certainly there have been plenty of Islamic radicals before. You can go all the way back to Saladin, but yeah. Bin Laden is is taking a, an outsider's role when the. Islamic power structure in most of those countries doesn't support him or even like him. So he's throwing these uh, thunderbolts from the sidelines, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, with George W. Bush, it's also clear historically that uh, the English-speaking peoples, beginning with the, uh, the English in the period of the Crusades have had very much a crusading attitude in the Middle East and, and towards Islam, mm-hmm. and not only in the 12th century or the 11th, but even in the 20th century, when the British troops invading the Middle East in 1917 were headed for Jerusalem and they did capture it, the commanding British general said, now at last the Crusades are over. So this is not a sense of combat purely on the side of Islam.
0: We're speaking with Kevin Phillips, author of the book *American Theocracy: The Peril, Politics, and of Radical Religion*, oil, and borrowed money in the 21st century. I was wondering you, you you're listing three things here: uh, religion, oil, and uh, credit, and 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 yet uh, we're intrigued by the religious angle. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, Orange County is known for mega churches. That's where we're broadcasting from. I, Have you, in your book tour, have there been other questions or have they mostly focused on the religious side? Do you think that the religion is the part that is most disconcerting about the Bush administration?
1: Generally speaking, so far in my book tour, there has been attention to all three aspects, Mm. which is to say radical religion, oil, and borrowed money. But probably the attention to religion has commanded more than a third of the... uh, uh, concern, partly because it's in the title. And when I talk about theocracy, that's a rule by religion. Now, I'm not contending that you can have the same sort of event in a country of 300 million people that's the leading world economic power as you could have, let's say, in, in John Calvin's Geneva or Massachusetts Bay with the Puritans or even Utah and the uh, the Brigham Young mormon stage in the 19th century you can't you don't have anything like that so theocratic trends come in a much lesser vein but i would say that is probably the element that has interested people the most
0: and, and it overlays the other two in that or at least the oil the peak oil i, I think there's a, a bit of denial about uh peak oil uh, either denial or just plain uh, wanting to to squeeze the last bit of uh, of oil out of it and make the most money out of that area. Do you, do you see that? Do you see that uh, overlaid, the religion over the peak oil?
1: Well, the overlay of religion is there with both oil and debt. Yeah. As people who are scholars of the, uh, the born-again psychology and the people who are waiting for the end times and the rapture will point out that often uh, in areas where... There's really a lot of attention to that, and a high percentage of people are involved in that. They pay much less attention to things that are matters of earthly and governmental concern, like, like oil or a deficit, because that's not where their their hearts and minds are at. And I think that's a problem if you go into the South, which is the core area in the, in the United States of evangelical, uh, Pentecostal, and fundamentalist religion. A fair percentage of the South is, is caught up in believing all of this, and to mm-hmm. the extent they are, it becomes much less pressing what the circumstances are with either oil or debt because they're waiting for the rapture, they're waiting for the end times.
2: You have, I think, are disagreeing with much of what we're hearing in mainstream media about the the purpose of the war. You you do think it's a matter of at least securing uh, oil reserves, oil fields for UN, U.S. foreign policy, right?
1: I think that oil is responsible for 50, 60, 65, 70 percent, somewhere in there, of the focus on Iraq and the military invasion of it. There are other aspects, although, even the geopolitical, the sense of having an alternative to Saudi Arabia as a basing area and an oil, uh, oil well area in the Middle East is important is essentially oil when you come right down to it. The notion that we're in the Middle East for democracy is something that's purely related to what seems like a good facade. Uh, That's not why the government is in Iraq. It's never been why the British and the Americans are in the Middle East. But if you're heavily dependent on a religious constituency that's thinking in terms of the Bible and the end times and the great fight between good and evil... You can't talk about oil in the LaHaye books. The Antichrist is the one who deals in oil. So you talk about goodness and fairness and good versus evil and democracy and, and put that up as the reason. When in point of fact for most of the strategists looking at Iraq back in 1999 or 2000 or 2001, they weren't thinking about democracy.
2: Yeah it 's been said if they were i think you even said if they were growing broccoli in the Middle east we wouldn 't be spending uh, you know two hundred billion dollars to to liberate uh, these this, this, uh, these people. I uh, want to get into oil let 's get into the idea of our massive massive debt and credit we 've become a a nation of creditors. How does this all intersect with what uh, what you 've been talking about
1: Well, part of what the problem is in terms of the massive build up of debt in the United States is that it comes out of a process of financialization of the American economy. Finance has replaced manufacturing as the mainstay of the U.S. economy, and this happened pretty clearly in the economic statistics during the 1990s. And one of the reasons for finance rising so much is the extent to which the United States was beginning to borrow And the debt and credit industry became a major factor in the United States because debt and credit was growing so much that it began to become the the key to the way people made money. The debt and credit industry, the credit card industry, has just been growing unbelievably, as has the mortgage financing industry. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason why debt on an international level has gotten so big is that because if the United States no longer manufactures too much, we have to increase Our uh, imports of manufacturers, and they've just been growing and growing and growing. And we also have to import more and more of our oil because we remain so oil-dependent, even as the ratio of American oil production to what we need just keeps shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Mm -hmm. So you have this massive growing international debt because we have to import so many manufacturers and oil. So the whole thing feeds together, and it's in some ways a frightening picture.
2: We're speaking with Kevin Phillips. The author of *American Theocracy*: The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. At what point, in your mind, does the United States actually become a bad investment? At what what is there a tipping point that you see in in this uh, in this mix? Well,
1: in some ways, the United States has already become a bad investment. You don't have foreign investors clamoring to put money into U.S. manufacturing, anything like that. You have them, to the extent they invest in the United States, they want to invest in government uh, bonds and notes that carry a fairly high rate of interest, especially now as the interest rates have been going up, and they want to invest in U.S. stocks if they think stocks are about to do well, but I think people are a little bit dubious about this. So there's a growing sense on the part of people overseas who've invested in the United States that it could be a, a kind of dicey game. For example, the central banks in Asia make so much money from providing the manufactured goods we don't manufacture ourselves that they've accumulated huge stores of dollars, and they don't want to sell them and cause the the dollar to uh, change it, its relationship to other currencies because that would hurt their business. At the same time, they're worried about holding the dollars because the United States has so much debt that it's possible that the dollar will start to tank. So if the dollar does start to tank, you have to worry about some of these countries saying, well, let's sell now because we'll only lose 3% of what we paid, but if we wait for a week, we'll lose 12%. So the whole thing is is closing in on critical mass. It's just very hard to know when that will happen.
2: But it it is a trend, isn't it? I mean, it's something you obviously something you see as 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 a as a distinct possibility. Didn't you describe at one point how you could see them unloading? Yeah, like you just said, unloading a little bit at a time, or converting to euros or some other form of currency. I guess that's well. Paul
1: Volcker, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve before Alan Greenspan, predicted several years back that he thought there was a seventy-five percent chance that uh, events in the united states would lead to a financial crisis and he sees the, the weak link in all of these financial relationships and so do i we have a, a credit bubble that's become huge americans have been urged to borrow to maintain their spending patterns and they have you have a, a they're,
2: they're but, taking all their money out of their homes in order they're to refinancing
1: to- against their homes to an extent that is created Uh, roughly 7% of disposable income in 2004, I believe it was, came from borrowing against homes. Now, that's that's not a healthy sign. That's not money made in the markets that's a a real profit. This is borrowing against an asset. It's an expansion of debt. And if prices in the the housing market start to slide on the two coasts, and that's probably where they'd start, you're going to see a lot of problems.
2: I think it was a, a Nixon administration economist, and correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he say that an unsustainable trend is not sustainable?
1: <laughs> Herb Stein would say things like that. Yeah, that's probably that's, who you mean. Yeah, yeah
2: so uh, so I guess this is what we're really talking about at the end of the day, or is it these unsustainable trends. At the risk of, of pulling you into uh, into the liberal democratic column here, um, is, there, is there a possibility of us... Getting out of this by virtue of a kind of a New Deal uh, program within the United States government, we are. If, if we're to be a good investment, we need a good infrastructure. And by all accounts, our infrastructure seems to be in the decline. If the government were to get involved in a massive project of infrastructure um, maintenance and, and upgrade, that would allow our manufacturing base to increase somewhat, and we'd become a better investment over, overall. Was that something you could see happening or should happen?
1: It's possible to entertain that option. The difficulty is that in order to do that, we'd have to borrow more money because the infrastructure wouldn't pay off immediately. You'd get your benefits over 5, 10, 20 years. And to do that means you have to increase the debt further, and it's hard to know what the pressures in terms of debt and interest rates are going to be at any given time. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are particularly worried about the future simply because we're boxed in. It's going to be pretty hard to figure out how to keep the balls up in the air while basically solving a few of these problems and getting some of the difficulties in hand. Uh, If somebody gets in in the 2008 election, I think they 're going to face enormous problems in trying to straighten this out i don 't expect much to be straightened out under George W. Bush,
2: yeah, well, people are talking about the energy independence project, sort of the man on the moon for the twenty first century idea, um, which is another government sponsored kind of program uh, is that an, i mean what do you see <laughs> Is there a way out of this box? Well, in terms of
1: the energy situation, I think the United States has to reduce the usage of huge quantities of oil through gasoline by automobiles. That's the principal problem. And how you do this, you have to tighten the standards on automobiles, you have to retreat a little bit from the notion of moving residential populations further and further out the interstates and giving people huge commutes. Now, the Republicans have the coalition that includes the people that live in the ex-Serbs, fair percentage of the people who drive larger cars. They have the the energy industries. I don't think that they're likely to bite the bullet. I'm not certain the Democrats would bite the bullet terribly successfully, but they probably wouldn't be inhibited by having the affected interest groups in their coalition. So I I have a lot of trouble seeing the Bush administration with or without Congress really leading boldly in uh, in new types of energy directions.
0: Uh, do you think there's a tipping point with religion now, too? I mean, are people going to get oversaturated with, with hearing uh, the evangelicals and the uh, the, the Pentecostals? Uh, is there going to be a, an, an awakening of sorts to that? Because you speak of it as a, a, a disenlightenment, I think, is the word you use.
1: I think it's a disenlightenment because you have growing evidence of a war between religion and science, whether it's in the attempt to bring creationist books into the National Park Service uh, book selection uh, at, at Grand Canyon mm-hmm. or on matters like stem cell research or putting a faith healer on the uh, Food and Drug Commission's advisory board. There are just lots of things that have begun to create this disenlightenment. Now, as to whether this is creating a backlash, I think the answer is yes. You've got a very sharp theological polarization in terms of wanting government and religion to come together. On one hand, you have the fundamentalist evangelicals in the Republican Coalition, who very much want government and and religion to come together. On the other hand, you have, on the part of the so-called non-evangelical or mainline Protestants, a very strong four-to-one desire that they not come together. And I think that within the Republican coalition, this is going to be very difficult. You'd have your highest numbers of uh, mainline Protestants in the northeast and the upper Midwest, and to some extent on the Pacific coast. And those are probably where the, uh, the fundamentalist evangelical Pentecostal strength is, is weakest. So some of these areas could easily turn more liberal politically, even if the South continues to entrench in a Republican direction.
0: Now, now, does this point to perhaps a, a third-party candidacy in that you said in your book that the, the Democrats aren't really doing anything to correct the situation and, and the Republicans aren't <laughs> doing anything? Is there, is there an opportunity here? We hit peak oil, uh, you know, the credit runs out, uh, and, and uh, there's a backlash against all the fundamentalists. Is there a, a possibility of, of, uh, of a third-party candidacy?
1: Well, I can't say there's no possibility because that will occur to people. But when the (laughs) Reform Party under Ross Perot petered out slowly, I think that uh, it lost a huge opportunity. Perot had the money and originally had sort of the personality to do it, too. But I think ultimately people began to think Perot was a little quirky and uh, he wasn't able to maintain any sense of his third party So I'm dubious about the third-party situation Mm -hmm. unless there's another major crisis in the next couple of years that revs it up. Right now, it's not a major option.
0: Well, well, what about uh, a more uh, moderate Republican? Do you you think there's room for that, or do you think that uh, Bush's forces would pretty much squeeze that out of the picture?
1: Well, I think uh, the likelihood of a moderate Republican winning – it's been pretty much resolved by the fact that John McCain, who ran as that kind of Republican in two thousand, now wants to make nice and praise George W. Mm-hmm. Bush, and he's giving us I guess he's given the speech at Cherry Falwells University in Virginia. So it struck me that basically McCain was throwing in the towel and saying these people have enough of a role a ruling role in the Republican Party that I can't get nominated without them. Now, I think in that particular sense, he may be right, but I don't think his personal reputation will profit from having thrown in the towel.
2: It's pretty disgusting to watch uh, McCain uh, in his journey the last four or five years. Here's a guy that was trashed beyond words in South Carolina and somehow, some way decided it was okay to find his way back into the fold with these same people. I don't understand it at all. And the guy who who apparently prides himself on being uh you know the straight straight shooter straight talk guy I don't understand it um I want to ask you I mean w- there's sort of across the board there isn't a lot of dynamic political leadership in this country uh republican democrat it's all it's really a lot of shall I say butt sniffers really who uh just who are are not really interested in trying to change this dynamic what what has happened to american political Leadership, in your opinion?
1: I think we've had a uh, calcification of institutions and, and parties, and a calcification of lobbying structures and reliance on money. Yeah. And there isn't any great incentive to the people in power to raise all these difficult issues, and that mm-hmm. applies almost as much to the Democrats. It's amazing to me that considering that they don't hold control of either the presidency or the House of Representatives or the Senate that they are so sort of meek and go-along as yeah. to not pick up some of the, the really challenging issues and beat the war drums.
2: And they're not. And they're not. Well, uh, Kevin Phillips, uh, thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. I'm going to once again remind our listeners that we're speaking with Kevin Phillips, the author of American Theocracy, The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. Thank you once again for sure. being on Weekly Signals. Thank you.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly
2: Signals.